So uh, we're going to continue on this week, as I kind of talked about last week. We're kind of doing two Sundays. And what I'm trying to bring forth and to help us see is that by doing history, we can really, um, we can really show the validity of the resurrection of Jesus. All right, We can really be confident in this as being a true historical event in history by doing history. And last week, and I won't get into it because I think I've talked for about 50 minutes, uh, but we really hit on the world views, right? We hit on the world views, the world views of that time, the different people groups, and how nobody was expecting, nobody had a, an idea of resurrection in this way. And so I really was hitting home that the disciples, the early disciples, um, could not have made this up. They didn't believe it would happen this way themselves. And so I'm not going to spend much time on that. You've got to go back and, and listen to that sermon because I spent enough time talking about that. But um, we're really just continuing forward uh, because while last week we took a giant step forward by looking at the worldviews of history, to do history, um, we need more. We need more uh, historical solidity, right? We need a firmer foundation to really, truly say, Yes, we are, we are as confident as any historian will say about history that this is indeed what happened. And so the proposal I'm putting forward is that the resurrection of Jesus was indeed an historical fact, an historical event that happened in history, and we can know that. And again, the big reason why I wanted to bring this forward is we know we have faith, right? And we know that we come to Jesus in faith, but as Timothy Keller would say in his book, Reasons for God, our faith has reason. We're reasonable. It's not just that we're believing in something foo-foo or something that's unprovable or something that's just, ooh, just take my word for it, believe in this, right? But no, we have a God that worked in history here on earth who did things here on earth. And we can track that by doing history and especially the resurrection of Jesus and I think it's so important to see that because our whole foundation of our faith rests on the resurrection of Jesus. The whole New Testament is built on that foundation. And so I want that foundation to be secure. And now I know some of you are like, Grant, I already believe. Like, golly, you don't have to like add anything more. I know. I have experienced the Lord. I've experienced His grace, His love, His transformation. I don't need anymore. Well, that's great. That's super awesome. And now I'm just, by doing this, I'm just like building like another retaining wall, right? I'm just firming up that foundation in a whole nother way. But some of you, man, maybe, maybe you have doubt, right? Maybe you uh, have different experiences in your life. Maybe you think a little bit uh, in a different way. And we just need to see this by doing history that we can be confident. We can be confident in the foundation of our faith, the resurrection of Jesus, we can be confident that it is indeed a historical event that we can know. So we're going to continue that today. But first, before we get into it, I just want to be super clear and give you a definition of resurrection, because it was fun talking about some of this to people through the week, and it's just really important to be clear on this. Resurrection, right? Resurrection that the early disciples believed happened to Jesus was this, that it was bodily life after life after death. Or if you prefer, bodily life after the state of death, 
It is dying and then coming back to life again in something like the same sort of life, like the same, not perfectly the same, but like the same sort of life that humans presently experience. Essentially, death is reversed. That is resurrection. So it's important. Again, I kind of showed last week, Plato has made its way into Western, Western Christianity, Western civilization Christianity. And, I mean, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, but maybe you thought, when I die, resurrection is just me simply going to be with Jesus. And maybe you felt like, I was going to be in some, like, disembodied soul, spirit, woo, floating around. That kind of is the cultural norm, if you will, of what we think heaven is like, is this disembodied floating around, you're with Jesus kind of thing. It's not indeed resurrection. That's not what the disciples believe resurrection to be. Obviously, we're getting, now we're getting into real deep weeds, but they do believe that there was some intermediate state is what the Bible kind of at least alludes to, where you will be with Jesus, whether you're disembodied or embodied. It's still up in the air. It's debatable, right? But we all agree, and the Bible agrees, that after that time when Jesus comes back, His second coming, there will be a physical resurrection of all those that have died. You will be physically resurrected back into the same kind differences, some similarities, very much a lot of differences. Paul gets into that in 1 Corinthians 15 and 2 Corinthians 5. But I just want to be clear on that point because it has a lot of implications and applications that we're not going to get into this morning, but possibly next week. Ooh. All right. Secondly, another note. Um, we're going to be using the Bible more as a source this morning. And again, this is kind of a, an apologetic, right? I'm kind of defending the historical uh, validity of this event. And uh, potentially someone who could be skeptical of all of this, or maybe doubts, or I don't really believe in Christianity. And when we start using the Bible to defend Christianity, they're probably going to say, well, how can you trust the Bible, right? Uh, that's kind of circular reasoning, right? And things like that. Well... By, personally, what I think is, by doing a historical defense, I'm giving credence to the trustworthiness of the Bible, right? By last week showing you that the disciples couldn't make this stuff up, doesn't that not give credence to their story? Do you see that? So if I can show you that this was indeed a historical event, the resurrection of Jesus, right, they couldn't make it up, so then I think it gives credence to their testimony and greater credence to the testimony of the Bible, especially the New Testament. Do you guys see that? So that's kind of what I'm getting at, and that's why I believe, and as we do this, I think we will show that the New Testament and the Bible as a whole is trustworthy. Again, the message of it. Undeniably, the books of the Bible are historical documents. I mean, that is so clean-cut. Historians, atheists, any background will all agree. We know all the New Testament books were documents written in the first century. That is so, so solid. You can't get much more solid than that. We know the Old Testament books were written and dated very long ago, before Jesus. Those are historical facts, right? So we know these are historical documents. What tends to be the debate is, do we believe the message of them? And that's what we're kind of doing today, kind of implicitly. So let's continue on. Let's get going. All right. To continue on with our uh, historical defense, we're going to be using two tools this morning. These tools are used 
uh, in logic. These tools are used sometimes in criminal uh, investigators to kind of show is the conclusion that was came to logical? Does it sound? Does it make sense? These tools are used in philosophy when it comes to terminology. Um, is this the right term? Did you use the right term in this? This is also used in math, mathematics as well. And these tools are called sufficient conditions and necessary conditions, all right? Now, let's get into this, and we're going to be really clear on this point. A sufficient condition is something that will certainly and without fail bring about the conclusion bring about the conclusion. Something that will certainly and without fail bring about the conclusion. Kind of a funny example. If I drink caffeine late at night, then I will not sleep well. Right? If then statement. It is suffice to say, if I drink caffeine late at night, I will not sleep very well. Right? A sufficient condition. If I drink caffeine, then it will certainly and without fail bring about the conclusion that I will not sleep well at night. Now, I know some of you are like, you're, you're caffeine icks. You know, you guys can drink caffeine at 10 o'clock and fall asleep at 10.05. That's your superpower. That's awesome. That's not mine, all right? Uh, that's not for me. So I know that's different for everybody. But for me, if I drink caffeine late at night, I will be up most of the night. It is a sufficient condition, all right? Now, why we have to go further than that is because just because that is sufficient to bring about the conclusion, that's not necessarily the only thing that would bring about that conclusion in my life, right? There are many reasons why I would probably be up late at night. If I'm thinking about the sermon too much on a Saturday night, I'm going to be up later than normal. If a really good movie comes on at like 11.30 and I'm like, oh man, I really like this movie, I'm going to be up later than I expected at night, right? There are different things. So we have to go further, and so therefore we have necessary conditions, something that has to be the case in order to bring about the conclusion. Now, if you're lost, no worries. It's okay. We are essentially using these tools to see if the early disciples' conclusion, their conclusion was that Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead. We're using these tools to see if they got to the conclusion in the right way, in a sound way. Is it logical? Does it make sense? Did they use the right terminology? Physical resurrection, does that line up with the reasons they give to how they got there? And we can use these tools to really kind of judge and, and determine if they got to the right conclusion by the reasons that they gave. Does that make sense? That's what we're using these tools from. Now we know the conclusion they got to was physical resurrection of Jesus. The reasons they got there is an empty tomb and it's meeting Jesus after he was resurrected. The sightings, the appearances of Jesus. Those are the reasons. We're going to look at those reasons. We're going to use sufficient and necessary conditions to determine if they got to the right conclusion that Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead. We all good? Everybody on it? Tracking? I can go again. I got mathematical examples of sufficient and necessary conditions. Got some other ones, but if we're good, we'll try to get out on time. Okay, all right. <laughs> Kid you not. You see this whole bold? That's a mathematical example of sufficient and necessary conditions. Forget about it. We're good. We got it. All right? We'll move on. 
Some of you are like, gosh, no, not math, not math. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. All right, let's take the first reason. All right, the empty tomb. Let's take it. Just the empty tomb by itself. All right, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all attest that on the first day of the week, Easter, the first day, two days after Jesus was crucified on the cross, they came to an empty tomb. All right, here are the passages, empty tomb passages. If you want to write those down, you can check them, you can read them. They're fantastic. I guarantee you, well, I promise you, all of them show that women came to a tomb that was empty. It was empty. Now, here's the question. Is that a sufficient condition to conclude that Jesus is resurrected? Is that sufficient? If you came across an empty tomb, would you certainly and without fail conclude that this person was physically resurrected from the dead? No, thank you. Well done. It is insufficient, right? I mean, let's be honest. If someone came up to an empty tomb in nowadays, would you immediately go, oh, they're resurrected? No, we wouldn't. And especially not back then. Why? Any ideas why they may not come to that conclusion? Sorry, say again. Made tombs ahead of time. Somebody took the body. Grave robbers, definitely. Yes. All of those things. Especially grave robbery. Grave robbery was somewhat common in that time period. It could easily deduce that. How could you prove that someone else didn't take the body? So it is insufficient by itself to say that they would come to that conclusion of Jesus being resurrected from the dead based purely on an empty tomb. Now we even see this in Luke's account. Luke's account of it, right? The women, you see the empty tomb, right? The angels tell them about what has happened. They go to the disciples, and the disciples are like, what are you talking about? Even they are like, an empty tomb means nothing. It doesn't mean anything. It's weird, obviously. And so Luke's account, Peter's like, oh, i got to go check this out. So Peter's going, woo, 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 running, checking it out. But even he is like, hmm, this is weird. This is odd. He doesn't conclude at that moment that he's resurrected, even that. But he's baffled, for sure, as we all might be. But even he's not saying resurrection, because by itself, an empty tomb is not sufficient to prove, logically, physical resurrection of Jesus. All right? Leave the empty tomb right there. Let's pick up the meetings, the sightings of Jesus. All right? Let's, let's talk about them by themselves. All right? 1 Corinthians 15, chapter, chapter 15, verse 6. Paul attests, the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, right? He attests that more than 500 brothers and sisters witnessed Jesus physically resurrected. All right? All four Gospels, again, all attest in some form or another. Some people, uh, others, you know, disciples. Certain accounts have the women seeing Jesus. Uh, Luke has the road to Emmaus. The two strangers walking on the road to Emmaus encounter Jesus, and they're talking with him. They all attest that people met Jesus. They talked with him. Some of them touched him. They ate with him. Jesus talked to them. They all attest to this. Even Acts chapter 1, again, Jesus is with people talking to them. So the Bible, again, is very clear on this. People saw Jesus after he was resurrected. 
Now, again, is that sufficient? Just seeing Jesus, all right? And think back to that time period. Think back to last sermon, last week, about the worldviews. Would that be sufficient for them? The worldviews that they had at that time, would that be sufficient for them to conclude that Jesus is physically resurrected from the dead? It's a little bit trickier, but again, I would say no. No. Luke's account is very interesting. Again, Luke's account. Luke, Luke is one of the best writers in, in, in the New Testament, in the Bible. He's fantastic. Luke, again, remember last week we talked about worldviews. They believed in ghosts. They believed in visions. They believed in, in spirits of that sort. And so it would not be very helpful that they could easily say, well, this is a ghost. This is a ghost. Or we're having some type of vision or spiritual experience. And again, Luke's account is great because Peter and the disciples, when Jesus appears to the eleven, they're like, it's a ghost. They say that. It's in Luke's account. Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 39. I hope I have that. I don't have that. Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 39 is that little section. Again, they're like, it's a ghost. But Jesus' response is so awesome. He's like, touch me. What's interesting is that last week we talked about Homer. We talked about the Iliad, right? In Homer's Iliad, um, Achilles, his cousin Patrocles, has died, right? If you've ever seen the movie Troy, Patrocles dies, Hector kills him, Achilles is super mad about that, and that's what leads Achilles to go and kill Hector. Spoiler alert, you had 2,500 years to read that story, so sorry, all right? Anywho, there's a part where Patrocles' spirit from Hades, the other world, appears to Achilles, and Achilles tries to grab onto him, but he's a ghost, so he's with him. You can't grab ghosts. You can't touch them. And Luke's account, again, is so great because I think Jesus is a ghost, and Jesus is like, touch me, touch me. And you have different accounts of that. Jesus says, touch me can't touch a ghost, but you can touch a person. You can touch a real human being. It's fantastic. So, again, though, I would still say it's insufficient. I think the worldviews of that time would, would, would cast a lot of doubt. Um, you couldn't, I don't think you could say certainly and without fail that you would get the conclusion that Jesus was resurrected from the dead purely on seeing him. I mean, let's be honest. Um, if I died, one of my brothers could look pretty darn similar to me if they really tried. And you could easily say, oh, this is somebody else. This isn't Jesus, but it's somebody else, right? You could easily say that. I mean, let's be honest. It could probably happen, right? You could be duped that way. So, by themselves, the empty tomb and the meetings and signs of Jesus are insufficient conditions. But together, put them together. You have an empty tomb, and then you see him, and you talk with him, and maybe you touch him, maybe you eat a meal with him. I would say, undoubtedly, as N.T. Wright would say, this is all N.T. Wright, this is amazing. It's not like I was just sitting this week like, hmm, what should I talk about, you know? No, this is N.T. Wright. He'd say, undoubtedly, you do have sufficient, you have sufficient evidence that certainly, and without fail, 
If you encountered an empty tomb, think for yourselves, if you encountered, if you just, some loved one died, and two days later, the tomb was empty, and you went and witnessed it, and you saw, son of a gun, somebody dug this thing up, and the coffin's open, and there's nobody in it, and you're like, oh man, I'm ticked. Somebody, you know, messed with the body and stuff, but then you're going home, and all of a sudden you encounter them, and you talk with them, and you touch them, and you give them a hug. Wouldn't you say you would certainly, and without fail, come to the conclusion that they are resurrected from the dead? Would you agree? That's what I believe the disciples came to. They had sufficient. So I think their logic, that it is sound. They came to that conclusion well. All sufficient conditions are met. It's fantastic. Now I want to take a quick breather to talk about the alternate view. Last week I talked about the alternate view. What was the kind of, what's the, the main alternative to a physical resurrection of Jesus? What's, what's the main alternative view that other historians have pushed forward and have, has gotten the most you know, attraction, so to speak, the most support? And that essentially was that the disciples had some spiritual experience, right? In their grief over their loved one dying, they had a vision, they had a ghost appear to them, they had something along those lines, and they took it as, Jesus is alive. He's alive, right? But again, that really falls flat because if you are saying that, everybody could just go down to the tomb, open up, and be like, shut up. There's a body right there. Golly. Shut your mouth. Or, you know, you could easily do that. Well, then they might, and as they purported, because anybody that holds to this view has to say, well, something had to be done with the body, right? So, what happened to the body? Well, the disciples stole it. Okay, here's why this one falls flat. Matthew's account of the resurrection, Matthew's account includes the chief priests and the Pharisees go to Pilate, and they're like, hey, we think, you know, we know this guy, the deceiver, Jesus, talked about how he'd be raised from the dead, and we think that his disciples are going to try to steal the body in order to, like, keep that up. So put a guard on that tomb and, and make sure watch it so that they can't do that. Alright? Well then we know that the resurrection happened. An earthquake scared the guards. The guards fl fled. Right? Jesus was resurrected. The empty tomb. He is risen. Amen? And then it comes back to that scene and the soldiers are talking to the Pharisees and telling them what happened. And they're like, okay, well here's a sum of money. Tell everybody that the disciples came and stole the body at night while you guys were sleeping. Read Matthew's account. It was, it's all there. Now, if you're Matthew, and you're trying to like, I had an spiritual experience. We stole the body. we got to get this thing going. Am I going to put it into the minds of my readers that we stole the body? Is he like O.J. Simpson? Alright? If we did this, this is how we would have done it. Alright? We would have stole the body. No. No, no, no. That is absolute just foolishness. That is just absolutely crazy. Matthew would not put it into the minds of his readers how they would have done it. Would not put that idea in there. It's pretty great, though. It, at least scholars into right would say it seems as if that is the rumor that was circulating at the time of Matthew's writing. The circulating that the disciples had indeed stolen the body, and so he's giving... Uh, uh, defense for it. He's showing, hey, this is what actually happened. 
And this is our response to this rumor that the Pharisees and the chief priests and, and scared that we would do this, did this, and this is what actually happened. Pretty neat. Pretty cool. But that was kind of a side note. Okay, but let's go back. Empty tomb and the meetings with Jesus, sufficient conditions. That brings us to a logical conclusion. Yep, they could definitely. They could definitely conclude that there's a physical resurrection. But we've got to go further because it's nice to have sufficient conditions met, but if we can get necessary conditions met, then man, we got ourselves a pretty water, airtight conclusion here that has a lot of security and grounding on it. All right? So do these, again, do this empty tomb and the meetings, also, also meet necessary conditions? Did this have to happen in order to get to the conclusion? Now, this is a little bit more difficult, and I will give a disclaimer to this because I, I want to be completely honest with you guys. I know in persuading, I, you know, anytime you're getting, trying, feel like you're getting persuaded by someone, you always have that little thing in your back of your mind like, are they keeping like certain things out? Are they phrasing things in certain ways to really keep out the, you know, the damning evidence, so to speak, or the, the counter arguments or anything like that? And I'm just going to be completely honest with you. N.T. Wright even brings this up in his own book. He's like, hey, it's, it's hard to get complete mathematical proof that necessary conditions were met on this. He's like, it's difficult. Why it's difficult is because when you're proving something had to be the case, had to be the case, it's like you have to have pretty much infinite knowledge to know that this was how it had to happen. And he's like, well, we don't have infinite knowledge. But based on all the archaeological evidence that we have, based on all the explanations, based on all the history, based on all that we have, this is, these are the two things that had to happen. I think we can agree with that, right? If you're in a worldview at the time that does not believe in resurrection at all, pretty much, right? Then what would have to happen to get you to jump out of that worldview and to believe now in resurrection. Well, there couldn't be a body in the tomb, right? Anybody could just dig it up and immediately the whole thing would be shot, right? So there would have to be an empty tomb. You would have to meet somebody. You would have to see them, right? You would have to see them. Wouldn't you agree? Would that be the only two things that would have to happen in order to see that, to believe that, to all of a sudden change your mind about all these things. And again, as we see Saul with Paul, how much he changed so much of the theology of Judaism in that time, how he changed all these things. You would have to, have to have an empty tomb. And you would have to have sightings. You would have to meet Jesus. Do you see that? You would have to have it. So I'm, I'm glazing over it, but I encourage you, if that didn't make sense or you want more information, N.T. Wright's book, The Resurrection Son of God. Great read. Highly encourage it and stuff. He will explain it much more in depth. He will give much better reasoning for it. But I think we can definitely conclude, and I think just logically we can say, yeah, it would be necessary to have those conditions. It would be necessary that there was an empty tomb and that there was meetings and sightings with Jesus. And so we get there. We can judge their conclusion, the early di disciples' conclusion, 
yeah, it makes sense that they believed in a physical resurrection of Jesus. They came across an empty tomb, and they saw him, and they met him, and they touched him. Makes sense. Does it not? Would it happen? Would that work for you? Would you need something else? Would you need more? Do you think that would be sufficient and necessary to you to believe? So again, as I've kind of been alluding to, I don't think the disciples made this up. I don't think they made up this whole story. I don't think they could have in the first place because of last week's sermon. Resurrection wasn't on their radar. They didn't even think their Messiah would die in the first place. They sure as heck didn't believe he would be resurrected. Right? And yet, they flopped. They flip-flopped. They totally went back on that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They changed. Changed their views on so many different things. Paul gets into it big time. 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Corinthians 5. He's talking about this new body that we're going to have. The resurrected body. He gives a lot of uh, explanation to it. There's nothing in the Old Testament talking about that, right? I talked about last week the resurrection passages in the Old Testament. There are only a few of them, and they're pretty vague, and they're not, I mean, they're, they're explicit, but all of that language refers to the resurrected being like stars. They're shining like stars in the universe. Yet Paul doesn't draw on that. So if he was just developing a theology further and just taking another leap, why doesn't he use what they already kind of believed about resurrection in the first place? He doesn't. He completely changes it. He's purporting whole new, whole new theology on what the resurrected body would look like, what we would be like when we are resurrected. So I don't think it makes sense, logically, that he just developed I developed or progressed the theology of resurrection. No, he encountered the resurrected Jesus as we see in Acts chapter 9. And I think that changed everything for him. Changed it all. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Some interesting points, because I always find these interesting. That's why I call them interesting points. Some interesting points to further this. Again, these aren't as big as the necessary and sufficient conditions, but I think they... They're, they're icing on the cake to further this home. Number one, women were the first witnesses to the empty tomb. Okay, this is, a, this is bad. This is horrible. It's not right. Wasn't right then. Not right now. I think we all know that. But back in that time, a woman's testimony in court was invalid. A woman's testimony in court would not be used. It was not valid. It's terrible. It's horrible. Not right, it was wrong then, be wrong now, it's never been right. But that was the case in that culture. So if you're making something up and you put women as your first witnesses, you're off on the wrong foot. You're off on the wrong foot in that culture. No one's gonna take that seriously. Nobody would. You're off on the wrong foot. I love NT Wright. NT Wright's got this really great dry sense of humor that comes out, and he's like, Golly, if these early disciples made these stories up, they would have done it better. They would have done it better. They sucked. You're like, this is bad. Like, you know, you're trying to get a hoax going, and you're going to use women? He's like, that's just you, just, you just all of a sudden, like, just dropped all credence to it. It's terrible. It's a terrible thing. I don't want to joke about it too much. You know, I can make light of it, but I think it's bad. But do you see, women being the first witnesses was not a good start for their story unless was indeed the case. Unless that's actually how it happened. 
And it was how it happened. And we see that in the Gospels. And it's great. Second thing, customary Jewish burial practices involve a two-step process. All right? So what would typically happen is, um, again, you know, you, you, you have your cave. You just put one person in there. It's not a very good return on your investment, right? Um, you, you need to do something with that body to make it, you know, available to another body, right? You want to keep making money, right? So what would typically happen was you would bury, uh, Jews would bury them in a cave, something like that. And after anywhere from six months to two years, right, the body would have decomposed completely by that time. They would take the bones, all right, and they would, you know, fold them up nicely and they would send them somewhere else in the cave or do something with them because they would want to open the cave back up for someone else to be buried. And again, we see this in the Old Testament um, where families were often buried in the same tombs, if you will. So again, it would be, yeah, you're setting these bones aside for some other relative of Jesus that they can be buried, and then you set their bones next to them, and you have this reincurring investment, right? So again, if they're, you know, trying to make up this story, hey, Jesus is resurrected, um, Joseph of Arimathea, right, and all four gospel accounts is the one who, whose tomb it was, who buried him, right, six to two, six months down the road, right, you know, to two years when all this is getting started and they're like, hey, Jesus is resurrected, he's going to roll back the tomb and be like, um, what are they talking about? Here's, here's the bones, right? And yet there's no account of this. There is no account of this two-step process. That second step never happened. And again, if it would have happened and they would have came across the bones, it, their whole gig would have been up, right? That's why typically the alternative, the alternative explanations are the disciples stole the body. Third one, this is a fascinating one. There was an inscription found, right? A Roman inscription found in Nazareth, right? Jesus of Nazareth, called the Nazarene inscription, all right? They have dated it to the time of Claudius, Claudius the Roman Emperor, from 41 A.D. to 54. They do believe it came before 50 A.D. So somewhere in the 41 to 50 A.D., that nine years, an inscription, all right, a declaration or a, um, uh, I don't know what the word is, a hear ye, hear ye, here's a law kind of thing, was in, put in place in Nazareth, and this inscription states that if anybody robs a grave or opens a grave or steals the body or messes with it, will be guilty of capital punishment. In historical terms, this is stinking close. You are, you are within a decade almost, a little over a decade of when Jesus' resurrection happened, and you're in that region, and you find this inscription being laid out that it's in capital punishment for anybody tampering with graves or stealing bodies or anything like that. Again, to note, Romans already had this in place. They already had this. This was already a decree already in place. We know that. So why was it added? And why was the punishment made harsher? And again, also, the Romans were, were known for cremation. That was the primary custom of how they dealt with their dead. They cremated them. Right? They burned them alive, so you didn't need graves. All right? And nobody wants to go in and mess with an urn of ashes. You know, So this was obviously targeted toward Jews in a very Jewish region of Nazareth to the group of people who buried their dead, not buried, put them in caves, 
essentially. This is, can't be coincidence. Cannot be coincidence. And it's fascinating. I love it. I love it. I love it. So in conclusion, the alternate view, again, that they had some spiritual experience. They saw Jesus as a ghost, some vision, some dream, some whatever. And then they subsequently stole the body. Again, that doesn't stand up to sufficient conditions because their worldview at the time was not believing in resurrection. They didn't believe in resurrection like this. They wouldn't have believed it if it happened. Again, they would have wrote it off. They said it couldn't happen. That's a vision. It's a ghost. Could not stand up. Does not sound up, stand up to sound logic of that time. I want to leave you with this quote from N.T. Wright. It's a longer quote, but I think it sums it up um, kind of pretty well, and I think in a great way. N.T. Wright says this, The early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings or sightings of the risen Jesus in order to explain a faith they already had. They developed that faith because of the occurrence and convergence of these two phenomena. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. No kind of conversion experience would have generated such ideas. Nobody would have invented it, no matter how guilty or how forgiven. And N.T. Wright will go in, goes into that. They know uh, they had different language for being forgiven. They had different ways of being forgiven. The law is very clear on that. And yet they go further and they changed it. Why? They felt no matter how guilty they felt, no matter how many hours they poured over the Scriptures, to suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and to enter into a fantasy world of our own. A new cognitive dissonance, which I believe is a kind of a separation of reality, I think. I'm looking at my counselors and stuff. It's essentially you have a reality in your mind, but it's not conducive with reality in general and stuff. A new cognitive dissonance in which the relentless modern, modernist, desperately worried that the post-enlightenment worldview seems in imminent danger of collapse. Again, this post-enlightenment, this modernist, modernist viewpoint is that resurrections do not happen because science says resurrections do not happen. Again, I mean, can we be, I mean, do I blame them completely? I mean, yeah, I mean, resurrection, yeah. And yet, it did happen once. Devises strategies for shoring it up nonetheless. In terms of the kind of proof which historians normally accept, the case we have presented that the tomb plus appearances combination is what generated early Christian belief is as watertight as one is likely to find. As watertight as one is likely to find. Uh, there's a spectrum in doing history the, uh, of kind of historical proof, right? Historians will not say certainty or like definitive proof because historians are like, we deal in the unrepeatable. Science deals in the repeatable. They can do this over. You can have the conditions. You can have a lab. You can do this. All right, we can repeat it. History is unrepeatable, right? You don't get a second chance. You, don't, you were just looking back at, a, at, a, at a, an event, right? And you don't get to play it all again. You don't have the same conditions. Even the next day is different and would bring about different conditions. As the famous quote says, you... Well, you step into the river, and you step again, you step into a different river, right? That's kind of like history. It's, it's always changing, not changing, but it's always different based on it. So we're looking back at an isolated event, 
And so what historians, kind of their spectrum is unlikely, possible, probable, highly probable. And as N.T. Wright would say out of last week's sermon and this sermon, it is highly probable, which is a historian's way of saying we're pretty darn certain that there was indeed a physical resurrection of Jesus. You cannot explain any, how the church began, how it took its shape, why they believed it, you cannot explain it any other way. No other explanation stands up even close to the fact that Jesus was indeed resurrected from the dead. That kind of concludes my historical defense. And again, I think all this was for to just give us greater security. I talked about it last week. History brings things close. And maybe, maybe that is for you, maybe that's not for you. But for me, when I'm doing history, it brings an event closer to me. And we're coming, up on the res- we're coming up on Easter, right? We're here at Palm Sunday. We're a week before Easter. And I get it. This event happened 2,000 years ago. And it can sometimes be hard to really relate to it, maybe. Um, or it just feels like this event that happened a long time ago. And maybe where you're at right now, Today, maybe you're, you're really feeling really close to the Lord, and you're like, I, I, I don't need this. You know, I'm, I'm just close to the Lord. I feel His presence. I'm just rocking and rolling. God is good. Hey, man, that's awesome. But if you're not, maybe you're struggling with doubt. Maybe you're seriously struggling with doubt. Maybe you're just going through a hard time right now, and you just feel like God is distant. Can I feel this? I just feel like He's far off. He's not here hope by seeing that this was an actual historical event, that he rose from the grave 2,000 years ago, and means he's still alive today, still alive today, seated at the right hand of the Father, our great high priest, our great high priest that is there on your behalf. It's not like he's trying to convince the Father. The Father's like, man, I'm still like trying to get this flood you know, project back on. I'm just sick and tired of humanity. It's not like Jesus is like, no, Father, stop, mercy. No, they're up there saying, man, I'm for you. I am for you. Come to me. Come to me. You can come in confidence. You will find grace. You will find rest. Come to me. He said that when He was here on earth and He keeps saying that for, for all time. Jesus is saying that. Come to me. Come to me. And again, I know historical, uh, even N.T. Wright's like, I don't know if this is going to convince someone outright into faith, doing history and stuff, but the Bible is so clear, man. Seek and you will find. Seek and you will find. No one has never not found Jesus when they sought with, for Him with all their heart. Man, and that's just not a New Testament. That was Jeremiah 29, 13. Seek me and you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. That has always been a promise to people here on earth. That has always been a promise to all of us. So wherever you're at, keep seeking, and this will become true. You will find it. This is the starting point. This is the launching pad. I hope I intrigued you to go further with it, but it is not all that is there. There is intimacy that you may have no concept for, that you can have with Jesus today because He is alive. It's there for you, and He wants that. And His Holy Spirit is there for you. It's the deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. 
is the deposit, the intimacy that will be yours when Jesus comes back and everyone is raised to life. You will have that deposit and it's showing you you're going to have that in the future. And we can have that now with the Holy Spirit. But you got to keep seeking. you got to keep going after Him. you got to keep pursuing Him. I know it's hard. Boy, I know it's hard. I really know it's hard. And it's hard to seek and it's hard to keep going when it's like, man, I just, I'm not getting anywhere. I'm not getting what I want. I'm not hearing from the Lord. Man, I'm not seeing what I want to see. I'm not feeling what I want to feel. Boy, it's hard. I get that. Boy, do I get that so, so much. You are not alone in that. I think everybody in this room can get that and feels that at different times. But golly, if you seek, you keep going. Boy, I promise you, you're going to look back and you're going to be like, wow, I just I didn't see what God was doing. Man, I didn't see what He was doing. I didn't see what all that needed to happen in my heart and in my mind and in my life. Man, He's doing something great in all of us. Man, He brings rain on the faithful and the wicked. It's one of my favorite lines. He cares about everybody. It's not just He cares about the perfect people who are loving Him and doing what He wants. He brings rain for the faithful and the wicked. No matter how much you've turned away, no matter how bad of a week you've had with sin, whatever it may be, no matter how unfaithful you've been in reading your Bible or prayer or whatever, man, He's for you. He's working on you. He's drawing you to Himself. And I just encourage you, keep going. Man, baby steps... Uh, there's a quote, man. Uh, I don't know who said it, but he's like, God stinking loves our most feeble and baby step occurrences of drawing to him. He loves him. I guarantee our parents of our young ones aren't like, golly, come on, kid. Why aren't you running? Jeez, get a job. No. <laughs> right? They love it. Seeing Amelia get up on her legs and make those wobbly steps. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Ain't none of us are going to be like, oh, geez, why aren't you further along? I mean, you know? And God's not saying that to you. Golly, man, you're 60 years old. Why aren't you done this, this, and that? Man, don't do that to yourself. God's not doing that to you. All right? You're starting today. That's okay. That's great. Take that baby step. Man, you're struggling with doubt. Man, take that baby step. And just cry out to Him and ask Him. Reveal yourself. Take that baby step. Read that one chapter in the Bible, right? Read John's Gospel. John's Gospel is awesome. It's all about seeing and believing. It's all about that. It's a theme. I encourage you, keep going. And if you seek and keep seeking, you will find. We need treasure hunters, folks. I need treasure hunters. I need Nicolas Cage from National Treasure. All right? I need people that are like, I don't care if everybody thinks I'm stupid or we're a bunch of cracks or cranks or whatever. I mean, I believe in this. And I'm going to keep going. I'm going to do some crazy stuff. I'm going to steal some stuff. No, I'm just kidding. Don't steal anything. All right? But I'm going to keep going with it. And I'm going to keep going even when I maybe doubt it in my heart. But I'm going to keep going, man. And I'm going to trust. And I'm going to have faith. And I'm going to keep walking with them. And I'm going to keep trying. And I'm going to ask for help. Man, ask for help, people. Don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. You're struggling with doubt. Ask somebody. Guarantee you, in this room, 
with our people, I think we could probably hit on every question, situation, life experience. I bet we could all, somebody, somebody at least one person could say, yeah, I, I, I know what you're talking about. I've experienced that to some degree. Man, let me help you. This is how, that, this is how the Lord helped me. Man, let's do that. Let's support each other. It's hard enough on our own, right? It's hard enough when we're together, right? In this world, in our culture, right? It's hard enough. We've got to come together. We've got to be together. Can you imagine the early disciples? Oh, man. We see the resurrected Jesus, and he's given us this commission to go out and make disciples. And the whole non-Jewish world doesn't even believe in resurrection. Oh, man. And then the Romans hate this because we were propping Jesus up as the true king and true lord of the earth, not Caesar. And they're going to get pissed about this. And they do in a matter of a decade or so. And they start persecuting and putting people to death. Man, you think they had to lean on each other? Boy, you think they had to come together? Man, if they didn't, there was no chance of that thing getting off the ground. They did, and we got to keep doing that. Keep supporting each other. Keep seeking. Man, I promise you we will all find. We will all find. It may look different than you ever thought it was. It may feel different than you ever thought it was. But you will find. And you will have intimacy, man. You will have that assurance. Man, let's do that together. Amen? If you'll stand with me, we'll close in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much that you've acted in history, that you sent your one and only Son because you so loved the world. We're so, so grateful, Jesus, that we can see that, that we can do history, that we can be confident in this. We're just so blown away with this amazing thing that happened in our history under the sun, on this earth, a resurrection. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It calls us to account. We have to think with it. Think about it. We have to deal with it. God is sinking into our hearts. Sink that truth into our hearts, God. Help us to know it, to feel confident on it, to build our lives on it. God, help us to seek you and to continue to seek you. Help us not to give up. Help us to hold fast to you in the times of doubt, in the dry seasons, the hard stuff that we experience in life. God, help us. Help us to keep going. Help us to depend on each other, to be humble, not prideful, to look to each other for support, to look to each other for encouragement, to look to each other for truth when we can't always see it for ourselves. God, help us. We know you are helping us. We're grateful for your Holy Spirit that came. We're so grateful for that deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. We're so grateful for the hope of resurrection that we have. We praise you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.